the weather was a little bit nicer today. There's a few more of you than there was last week. Um, we had fun last week. Just, it was a nice small group last week. But if you missed out, we, st- we started talking about the fact that God invites us into a relationship. But it's not enough to just be invited into a relationship. You have to respond. And if you don't respond, you miss out. But it's not just enough to say yes. And as I got thinking about this, I said, I want, I want to carry on. And tonight I've entitled it, What Does Yes Entail? Because a lot of us have, have grown up in church. We've heard an altar call. We've responded. We said, you know what? Yes, I want Jesus. But, but then what? And a lot of us get this, well, well, well then, and, and like you hear somebody else's story, and they're like, you know what? I turned to Jesus, and I got instantly set free from drugs or alcohol or pornography or some big thing that they're like, there was this massive, earth-shaking, world-visible thing. And you're like, I got saved. I gave my life to Jesus, and I went home, and my alarm went off. I had to go back to work. People at work were still crazy. I came home. My kids still didn't know if they loved Jesus yet, and they were crazy. And like, there's all this stuff, and they're like, well, where, does, where do I feel this? Where does it change? And a lot of times people, people start their Christianity because they thought it was a magic wand. They're like, isn't there a wand that you come up and you say a magic prayer? And it's kind of like the fairy tale where it's like abracadabra kapoof and they get a pumpkin that turns into a chariot or something cool. And you're like, I said amen. And now doesn't everything just get easy? Doesn't Christianity make everything easy? Isn't that what the Bible promises? But that's not. Um, and I, I, I really wish it was. It'd be nice if it was like, say this prayer and you'll be rich. Say this prayer, you'll never be sick. Say this prayer. Like, that would be awesome, but that's, that's not what it, the Bible promises. In fact, Jesus promised, he says, that you'll have trouble or persecution for the word's sake. He tells a parable about the person who built his house on the rock and the person who built his house on the sand. But then he says a storm came to both of them. And it having a solid foundation didn't control the weather. It just allowed them to weather the storm. And as I, as I got looking, I'm like, okay, so, so becoming a Christian isn't going to make everything instantly easy. But that doesn't mean it's not awesome. There, there's some things that you, um, I think one of the, the first things that came to mind is, how many of you guys have a house? How many of you would like it if someone just paid off your house for you? Yeah, everyone's like, everyone who owes on their house is like me, yes, pay off my house, that'd be great. Um, and you'd go home and you, you'd wake up and you'd still be in the house, but something's different because now you're set free from this debt that had been a great burden to, to a lot of you. And you're like, all right, so this is, this is great. But when I, I begin to look at our Christianity, one of the things that most everyone seems to, to recognize or to remember is that we've been set free from a debt of sin. Colossians chapter 2 Verse 14 tells us that Jesus canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away, nailing it to the cross. And we get this starting point of when I made this decision to receive what God had for me, one of the first things that we tend to recognize is that we've been forgiven. Um, in 2 Corinthians, chapter fi- uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, it says, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for the one who for their sake died and was raised. And it says that one died for all, therefore all have died. And so here it says that he took our place. And most Christians recognize this. They go, you know what? When I gave my life to Jesus, 
there was a great exchange in which he took my sin and I have been forgiven. The problem is that's where most Christians stop. As they go, sweet, I've been forgiven and that will matter to me when Jesus comes back or I die. And they think that this is, this is the extent of it, but there is so, so much more. In Ephesians chapter 1, it said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing, that's a lot of blessings. And, and as I begin to think about it, I'm like, okay, that's forgiveness, that's, our, that's a new identity, that's salvation, that's authority, that's hope, that's the joy of the Lord, that's a future, that's the fruit of the Spirit, that's over 3,000 promises that are found in His Word, that's freedom, that's purpose, that's the Holy Spirit and the gifts. In Ephesians chapter 1 and uh, I guess one, two, and into three, is just this list. It says, every spiritual blessing chosen in him with a plan, um, glorious grace, redemption, forgiveness, united with him, an inheritance, sealed with the Holy Spirit, made alive, seated with him, brought near, access to the Father, and promises available. Are all just in those chapters. It goes, this is just some of what becomes available to you when you say yes, when you begin to follow him. Jesus says, you are born again. He, he tells um, tell someone in chapter, John chapter 3, he says, Truly I say to you, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. In 1 Peter, it says that he call, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so uh, then in Romans, it tells us that we've been adopted into his family. And so we see this, this being born, again, being born into his family, as I got thinking about this, and we, we used proposal and marriage last week in our example, and I got carrying it over, I got thinking about marriage, and my wife was excited when we got married, uh, first off, because she likes me, that's kind of a good thing, um, if you're thinking about getting married and you don't like them, don't marry them, but she liked me, she was excited, but not only that, when we got married, well, first, she gets everything that I have, and I'm a saver, so she's like, oh, sweet, I get some money, um, and, but, but more so, she was excited about being with me, but she was going to get a new, not a, not a full identity, but she was going to get a new name. And one of the things that had bothered her was there is some distant relative that has the, had the same name as she did. That distant relative got into a lot of trouble. And so, like, when she went to get a job, they, like, pull, do a background check, and they pull it up. They're like, I don't know if we can hire you. And you're like, Check her birthday. Check this. It's not the same person. She's a couple inches taller, doesn't have the same birthday, doesn't have this. But she had to like get fingerprinted because this other girl who shared her name got into a lot of trouble. And she got a new one and she got released from the um, errors of this other girl's mistakes. But when we get born again, it's not just a new name. It's a full new identity. And everything that had claimed to us, everything that held us bound, lost its claim. Because it, 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 it was like, all right, you've got to, you, you owe this debt for as long as you live. And he said, well, well, you've died. So all of that that you had owed is no longer owed. You've been set free. 2 Corinthians 5 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And as I begin to look at this, begin to read through Paul's epistles, Paul begins to pray for us, but he doesn't pray like we pray. Most of us pray God, I want, God, give me this. And if we're like, all right, I'm going to pray unselfish. God, give them this. God, give them. And, and most of our prayers, we're asking for things. 
But when Paul prayed, he asked that they would know. And you go through in Ephesians chapter 3, in, uh, no, sorry, Ephesians 1, he says, he prays for wisdom and revelation of the knowledge of him that their hearts could be enlightened, that you may know. And he, again and again, he's, he's praying for this. And you find it again in his prayer in Colossians 1, Philippians 1, and Ephesians 3. Because if you don't know what you have, you will never use it. Um, a few years ago, okay, several, quite a few years ago, um, my wife and I, we had our house and we didn't have any furniture. We used my mother-in-law's furniture for a while because she kept moving into diff- different little apartments and couldn't get her, her couches in there, so we had them for a bit. And then it came time where I had to grow up and buy my own couch. Like, okay. We go shopping, day after Thanksgiving, they're on sale, and we get in there and we go looking and we find this couch. I'm like, this thing is awesome. And it was on sale and like it rocks and then they've got recliners in the couch and we've got a couch and love seat deal. And I'm like, all right. And we, we'd saved up and so we bought this couch and I was so excited. And we got it home and, and it was a lot harder than the one in the store. It had to get broke in and we got it broke in and, and we'd play cards and so we'd, we'd find a little hard something and we'd set it in between us and we'd play cards on the couch and, and we had it for several years. And then we go to move. And when we go to move, um, myself and somebody else get on the couch and we go to pick it up and we're going to make it around this corner so we tip the couch. And out of the middle of the couch falls an armrest that's like yay wide with two cup holders and a nice table for playing cards that just like falls down. I'm like, this has been here the whole time. And I'm like all messing with it. I'm like, I, I paid for this couch. I, like, this couch is mine. But I have been deprived of full use of this couch that's 100% paid for because I was unaware of what was mine. And a lot of times we go through this, this, this life unaware of what has become ours in Christ. And we don't benefit from it because we don't know that we have it. If you don't know that the middle of the couch yanks down, you never think about yanking it down. When I yank at things that aren't supposed to come down, they break. You're like, all right, like... I don't know how many things I've broken because I thought they were supposed to move and they weren't. And I have the tendency to like, um, okay, so another story. Um, I told my parents years ago when I was living for them, I'm like, I'm going to go for a walk. So it was like in the evening, uh, night. And so I took off for a walk. Well, my mom decided to shut things up and lock things while I was out. I didn't know it. And so she shut the garage door. I'm like, whatever, there's a side door to the garage. And so I come around and it used to stick a little bit. So I turned the latch and I'm like, Oh, it's stuck. No worries. Boom, I just put my shoulder into it. And like, not like a run up, but just from right here. I'm like, it didn't open. Man, it's like I was really stuck. And I got ready to do it again. I backed up and all of a sudden I could see the bolt. I had cracked the frame because she bolted the door. I thought like, she knew I was out for a walk. She's not going to lock me out. She bolted it. And I was like, oh, it's just, just stuck a little. Rammed it and broke it. So I try not to just force things and break things. But when you don't know that they're there, You don't take advantage of them. And he sits here and says, you have to know who you are. You have to know who you are in Christ. If you don't know your identity, you will will not walk in it. How many of you guys lose things frequently? Do we have any frequent losers? Not losers of games, but losers of things. Um, I am pretty methodical in how I place most of my stuff. When I place it out of its methodical place, I call it lost. Um, but I have this ability to go look for things and not find them. So like my wife will be like, hey, can you get this for me? I'm like, yeah, yeah, where's it at? It's in the fridge. Go look in the fridge. It's not in the fridge. Yeah, it's on the top shelf. 
no, it's not there. And like, you're like, look, move everything. And I pick it out here and I put it back. And she comes up and is like, oh, it's right here. I'm like, I looked right there. It was not right there. How many of you guys have ever looked for your phone while you were talking on it? Anybody ever do that? Yes, I am not the only one. Like, you'll be talking to somebody right before you get ready to leave somewhere, and you're like, all right, I'll get ready to leave my office. And, like, it's, it's a habit. You check your pockets to make sure you have everything you need. You're like, keys, wallet. And you're like, talking to them. You're like, hold on. You're like, you're like and you're like, shoveling around papers while you're talking to them. And you're like, where, where did it go? And then finally, you're like, what are you doing? Like, oh, I'm looking for my phone. And then you're like, all right, I feel like an idiot right now. Because... If you're looking out for something that's in, no matter how many places you look, you don't find it. And a lot of times, that's our problem, is that we're looking out for something we already have in. So the only place that you're going to find it is if you look in a mirror. And the mirror that we need to look at to find your identity is the mirror of God's word. Because the devil will try to attack your identity and he will try to get you to look in all of the wrong places to decide who you are. And you will live and operate out of who you are. And one of his, I guess his first attack on Jesus was trying to kill him as a baby. But the first temptation that we have recorded of Jesus he, in Matthew chapter 3, the end of the chapter, he gets baptized. He comes up from getting baptized, and like heavens open up. God speaks from heavens, like, this is my beloved son, son in whom I am well pleased. Like, that's pretty awesome. So he, then he goes out into the wilderness. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and then he was hungry. You're like, really? Duh. I like, fast for an hour, and I'm hungry. So he, uh, he's there. That says the devil shows up, and the devil looks at him and says, This is Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He just heard from God, This is who you are. 40 days earlier. Now, the devil comes, If you are, you got got to prove it. Like, you, you have to earn this. You got to show me. You have to. Find your identity in your performance. It was this, this temptation that he let out there. The devil will do the same to you. He will try to get you to find your identity in accomplishments, in, um, in, good, in your job, in performance, in comparison, in keeping up with the Joneses, in the opinions of other people, in your friends, in your social or financial status, possession, incomes, by your failure, by your mistakes. These things are not who you are. They may be how you, what you do. They may have been um, your job, but that's not who you are. See, what makes a prince a prince? Their dad. It's a birthright. It has nothing to do with are they nice or are they not nice? Are they smart or are they not? It has everything to do with who's their parents? You look and you go, well, his parents are a king and a queen. He's a, he's a prince or she's a, she's a princess. And it doesn't matter. And Jesus says that we'll be born again. When we get born into his family, your identity now becomes from 
this new birth, it becomes in him, no longer based on your performance. Yet so often, we try to earn what is already ours. We try to earn what is a birthright. And you can't. And when you're trying to earn what you've already been given, it doesn't work. But it does rob you. It does cripple you. When you're busy searching, trying to perform to find your identity, trying to find your value. Um, I went uh, a couple years ago, a couple years, a lot of years, some years ago, uh, a couple invited my wife and I over for dinner. And I was like, oh, sweet. So they were all excited about having us over, and so we, we went over to, to dinner with them, and, and they cooked us this really nice meal. And we're, we're sitting down, and we're talking, and we hadn't been there for real long, and we're talking, and all of a sudden, in the middle of this conversation, we'll just not name them Bob and Sue. Bob's like, see, I told you. What's going on? So, and then, like, okay. He's like, she said this the other day, but I knew I was right. And like, whatever, they brought it back up so that we would unknowingly be like refing their previous argument. And you're like, okay, okay, that was kind of weird. And then like, 15 minutes later, see, I told you. And you're like, oh, there's another one. And like, and, and she's, oh, he said da, 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 da. And then a few minutes later, and like at least four times when we were over there, all of a sudden, they're like throwing each other under the bus. They're like, see, I was right, and you were wrong, da, 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 da. No, no, you, and, and like it just kept going on. And you're like, what is going on? Like I'm, we are unaware refing the week's arguments. Like what, what is happening? And, and like they are, constantly trying to push each other down, trying to find identity, trying to find value, trying to find their significance in being right, in being above the other person rather than elevating each other. Because marriage, if you'll take the time to elevate each other rather than elevating yourself, is awesome. But if you take your marriage and try to cut each other apart and so that you're the tallest one still standing, it's horrible. And, and they were, at this point in time, they were just cutting each other apart, but it's so often that people are, are hunting for their identity, trying to find their significance, and don't realize it. That they're, that they're looking into performance, trying to, to earn it, trying to put others down, gossiping, because when they feel like they're tearing somebody else down, they feel like, I'm not being torn down, so I must have achieved, I must be something. Rather than doing out of what they, who they are, they're doing to try to become. And I wish I could say that a lot of people in the world have this problem and I've never dealt with it, but I actually recognized it really, um, I discovered all of a sudden that I had a, quite an issue with it myself. Uh, one, one day I, I, like I recognized, okay, I'm a competitive person. I don't know how many of you guys are competitive, but I am very, very competitive by nature. And somehow it got mixed in to a hunt for an identity where it, it, it's obviously more fun to win than to lose. That's kind of the objective of a game is to win the game. If the objective is to get the highest score, then that's how you win. If the objective is to not get the highest score, that's how you win. And so they call it golf or whatever. Like whether it's to get lots or to get little, it, it's a contest and you, the goal is to win. But what happens for a lot of people, what happens some for me, is it stopped being about winning and started being about becoming. 
And you'll watch fights break out around a game because it's not just who scored more points. They're trying to discover, decide who's more significant because they're looking for their identity. I discovered it when, as my kids, my bo- I, I've got four little kids, and three of them are boys, and they love to wrestle. If I sit on the floor, it is game time. It is time to tackle dad. And it is, it is so much fun. And I don't have anything to prove when I'm wrestling with my six, five, and two-year-old. Um, and they'll, they'll tackle me, and however many of them are there, that's how many it takes to tackle dad. So if there's two of them, one of them will tackle me, and I'll just sit there and go, it looks like you need help, until the other one comes and helps him, and then they shove me down, like, ah! And if there's three of them, then two of them can't do it. And like, all right, you need help, you need a team tackle. And then they all get together, it's a team tackle, and they tackle dad. And it's fun, and I, and I realized it was very easy for me to lose to my children. Because, they're my, A, they're my kids, but, but as my kids... I don't feel like I'm less of a person because I got tackled by my five-year-old because obviously there's not actual contest here. But I I can look back to contests, to competitions, to games, to wrestling that I pushed too hard because I needed to be. I remember almost getting in a... uh, a fight with, with a, a friend years and years ago because I got excited. I, I, I don't know what I caught, uh, a pass, and I, I scored. And I was like, yeah, I had to like celebrate. And, and he was really upset because at that point for us, it was not a matter of a game. It was a matter of being. And a lot of times we do that in marriage. We do that in friendship. We do that in work. We do that in all these different places where Things that are are good things to do, all of a sudden we flip from doing them to trying to find our identity in them and trying to go, I am a winner because I won or I'm not good because I lost. And it's not about um, a game that becomes an identity. A great example of what this does is found at the Last Supper. If you rewind shortly before the Last Supper, you'll find several spots throughout the Gospels that the disciples have a reoccurring argument. The argument, who's the greatest? And and so they sit here, and I don't know exactly how the argument goes. It just records. They argued about it. It doesn't say, you know, John's over there like, hey, Peter, Jesus loves me more. And Peter's like, shut up. I walked on water. Like, I don't know, like, how the argument played out. But it says that they would argue about who's the greatest. And then they go to to the Last Supper. And if you're not very familiar with the times you're used to today, um, today we normally drive places. Um, You have nice shoes. When you get places, your feet are relatively clean. Some of your feet stink more than others, but it's not that bad. And that day, everyone's wearing sandals. And the mode of transportation is either walking or an animal. Animals poop. So in the areas that they're doing lots of walking, there's lots of dirt, dust, and poop. So when you would come in for a meal, it would be customary for the servant to wash your feet because you've been out there, you've been out there in the sandals, your feet are nasty, so it's kind of a gross job, a little bit of a humiliating job, typically for the lowliest person in the room to take care of. And so when they walk into the upper room to have this this meal, everyone's like, well, who's going to wash my feet. 
And, and they're sitting here going, I'm the greatest. And they might have been sitting there going, might not be the greatest disciple, but I sure ain't the worst disciple, so someone else is going to do it. And so they're, they're all like jockeying for position as they go into this because they're trying to decide who is the greatest. And then as, as the meal goes on, it, it goes through and says that Jesus, in, this is John 13, 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself, poured water in a basin, and it goes on how he washed their feet. And they begin to freak out. But I, I've read this one day, and it finally occurred to me, I'm like, wait a second. It states, knowing who he was, he got up and served. Everybody else at the table was trying to find who they were. They were trying to prove their worth their value, their identity. So they were unable to serve. He goes, I know who I am. So I am free to serve. Because serving you doesn't make me less. In fact, I get to honor my God by serving you. And I watch this identity and go, oh, that if I can see who I am, then I am free to serve. Then I am free to walk out God's plans. Then I'm free to apologize to my wife because it's no longer who am I? Am I right? Am I? It's who I am doesn't change. So I can humbly lay myself down and serve. Whether that's serving the children, whether that's serving um, the, the homeless, whether that's serving my wife, as I know who I am, I am empowered and set free. And I no longer have to prove myself. I no longer have to respond when someone's trying to tear me apart because they're tearing me apart. Their opinion of me is not what shapes me because I know who I am. And when we, we get that, and so I, I begin to look and go, well, who does the Bible say you are? Let me, let me go through a little bit of a list and introduce you to you if you haven't met you. In case you haven't met the you that is in Christ, let me give you a little bit of an introduction. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are made on purpose with a purpose. God made you right. You are not a mistake. You're loved regardless of how you feel. Your value is priceless. Jesus placed your value at more than the world. He deemed you worthy of laying down his life, for which is the greatest sacrifice of love, because he loves you. You are forgiven, and God doesn't see you through, the, through your mistakes. Jesus took your mistakes upon him. He bore all your shame. You are free from the past when you received what God has for you. You became a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Even though we have messed up since becoming a believer, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. God wants to be our loving Father. God cares about us and for us and wants to be there for us. He wants... Um, when we don't feel good enough, it doesn't matter because God is more than enough. He said he would never leave us or forsake us. In our weakness, he is strong. We never are called to do it on our own. When we trust in him and go to him, we can see him do what we could never do on our own. In him, you are more than a conqueror. You are redeemed. You have a purpose. You are a child of God. You are adopted into God's family. You are Christ's friend. You've been justified. You've been bought with a price. You've been redeemed and forgiven. You're an overcomer. You're not alone. You're a new creation. You've not been given a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. You are loved by God. You have the ability to be quick to listen 
slow to speak, slow to become angry. You are who God says you are, not what people say you are, not the sum of your accomplishments or failures. You are who the, who the creator declares you to be. You are filled with the fruit of the spirit, with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You have everything you need to live a godly life through the knowledge of him. That's who you are. And as we get this, it sets us free. And as we get this, we're able to serve. As we get this, there's so much that comes, that comes with it. That you have a new family. In that new family, there is a new way of living. You get to, to follow him. You get to be set free. Um, one of the things I get to do in pre-marriage counseling... Um, you, you get people together, and they have different families. If they don't have different families, we have a problem. Um, and we aren't in Arkansas, so we shouldn't be dealing with that. And so we, when they come in, you go, okay, your family has a normal, and your family has a normal. But they're different. But the problem is you think it's normal. So you don't think to talk about what is already normal. And so they have different sets of expectations. And one of the things we try to do in pre-marriage is help them discover their expectations. Help them to discover what they consider to be normal. When you got invited into Jesus' family, you got a new family and a new normal. Because in the world's normal, there is an expectation that you'll do what you want, when you want, how you want, regardless of what it costs others. But in God's family, there's a new reason for living. There's a there is a living to please and to honor God. He says to come and to follow him. And as I, I begin to look at this going, okay, there's this, there's this difference in this expectation that I have a new identity that I get to live out of. And in this new identity, there is a new way of living. Is that how I want to live? Do I want to follow him? Do I want to, to do things God's way? Or do I want to identify with the family he pulled me out of and the way that the world works and operates? And it's this choice. And I want, I have, okay, I started putting my notes together and I figured out that I wasn't going to get to my other five points. Um, but I want you to know who you are. And that as you do, you can be set free from trying to earn what God's already given you. That your identity has nothing to do with how well or poorly you perform. It has to do with who you've now made your father because you've been born again. If you have responded to his invitation and said yes, but if you have not responded, then that's not the case yet. And I will give you an opportunity in just a minute to respond and say, I want those things to be about me as well. I want a new identity. I want to be forgiven. I want to encounter the 3,000 promises plus promises of God. I want to walk in his authority. I want all that it is that God says he has for me. If, if you've not done that, Maybe you said yes, but you have not become part of God's family. You have not begun to give him your life and to follow him. 
I want to give you an opportunity to respond tonight. Can everyone bow their heads and close their eyes? If you're here and you say, that's me, I want to respond to his invitation. I want to make him the Lord of my life. I want to become a member of his family. I want to begin to, to follow him and to walk out of the identity that he has for me. I'm going to count to three and ask you to raise your hand. One, get ready. Two, three. So that's me. Awesome. Who else says that's me? I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. I want to live for him every day. I want to be a part of his family. Awesome. Awesome. Say hand back there too. Or you can put your hands down. The Bible says that whoever calls on his name will be saved. It's a simple thing. He paid for it. And he offers it to us and says, will you respond and call on me? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to respond. So I'm going to ask you to, to repeat after me, whether you raise your hand or you've done this before, as we call on God's name and we declare him to be our Lord. Say, God, thank you for loving me, for pursuing me. I believe that you died and rose again. I'm sorry for the wrong things I've done. I receive your forgiveness. I want to live for you every day. I make you the Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.